week after, week after, two weeks away, it's coming up. Um, I know you're already eating chocolate Easter eggs and hot cross ones since December, but uh, Easter's coming up. Um, just a shout out to, we've got Pastor Rob and a few members of the team up in Alliston, running One Heart Alliston today. Keep them in your thoughts and prayers. Um, it's great to be able to uh, send our team off and um, be ministering around the Air Peninsula. So um, isn't it great when things are going well? Yeah, that's always great. I've got a 16-year-old daughter, Amy. She's learning to drive. Things are going well. Everything's well. Uh, she's actually really good. She's been driving for about five or six months now, and now it is actually like it's going fine. Uh, in the first few months, was touch and go. Um, I think my blood pressure went through the roof. It was, there were a few scary moments today. Um, there was one day when I was like, break, 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 and then she goes, oh, I sometimes forget which one is which out of the pedals. We've got an automatic. There's only two pedals, man. Um, but now <laughs> she's in good church, so I'm being a bit naughty talking about her today. Don't say a word to her. Just keep that between you and me, okay? Keep my trust on that one, and I won't need to hear the podcast and everything will be fine. Um, but it just reminded me, like, when she first started to drive, like, the first day she's like, yeah, let's go somewhere fast. And, and then after that I'd go, let's go for a drive. And she's like, oh, no, I don't want to because it's, it's really hard, isn't it, when you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, and I just made me think about when I was learning to drive and driving a manual and it's just, you think, how am I ever going to remember this? And your mum's like, and your dad's like, oh, soon you'll be in automatic mode and you're like, there's 200 things to think of before I even move the car. How am I ever going to get it? Such an uncomfortable feeling, isn't it, when you just don't know how to do something. It's, it's not really a cool way to, a cool place to be. It's a uncomfortable feeling. And that's what I actually want to talk about today if I get that PowerPoint rolling, is um, about that, that sort of sense that we don't know what we're doing or we're not equipped or we're not the right man for the job or we, we don't think we're good enough or we're just really struggling feeling like, man, I'm drowning here. I don't know how to do this. It's such an a uncomfortable feeling way to live. Uh, yeah, way to live. <clears throat> um, when I have, uh, I used to have this boss, I've quit that job now, but I used to have this boss who would just always throw me in the deep end. Stuff I just, I was like, seriously, I'm just going to be making a fool of myself here. Uh, maybe even breaking some insurance laws. Like, I really don't know how to do what you're asking me to do. And she would just be like, you're fine. And oh, I just felt terrible the whole time I was doing it. And I was you know, faking it till I make it. And I like never made it. Um, it just, yeah, I hated doing that job because she'd, she'd just be like, you'll be fine, you can do it. And I was like, I can't do it. I mean, in a job, you can upskill, you can do courses, you can read stuff. Now we've got YouTube, almost any job is doable. But there is just still some things that you go, this is just beyond me actually, isn't it? Have you ever encountered that? Am I the only one? Uh, Carlos is nodding. Carlos, there's no, you don't feel that. <laughs> that was just an empathy nod for the rest of us, I think. A sympathy nod. Uh, the time when I most felt this, when I most felt totally out of my depth, was when I had my second baby. She's also out at the little kids' church, so I'll talk about her a little bit too. Um, so she was, she's a great girl now great girl, really happy girl, Nikita, but she was just the most worst baby you could ever have. For the first two years, all she did was scream 
and scream and scream. I know I've said this to you before. It ha- my story hasn't changed. She just screamed all the time. And when Amy was born, my first baby, she was a good baby. She just sat there and looked around and <laughs> went back to sleep. She was a good baby. And I thought, oh, that's because I'm a good mum. That's why. And then I had the second baby and she just screamed all the time. And everyone's looking at me like, what, what are you doing? And I'm like, this is because I'm a bad mum. I don't know what I'm doing. And every single day for at least two years, I, for every day I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I feel like I'm drowning here. I just, I can't do this job. And you know, the stakes are high when you're raising a kid. You're thinking, I'm stuffing up a kid's life here. I just don't know what I'm doing. I'm, I'd always be praying, God, I think I've got the wrong person. Can't someone else do this? I never found anyone else to do it. Um, it. It was just that, like, living day after day, feeling out of my depth. I'm not good enough to do this. I'm ill-equipped. I don't know how to do it. And we can feel like that in other relationships as well. Perhaps when you go through a really difficult time in a marriage, and then again, the stakes are really high, and you can feel like, gosh, we're just having the same argument over and over and over. Sometimes you wish you could just press record on one of the arguments and next time it comes up, just press play and say, how about we let the argument carry on and you and me go out to ice cream? Like, but I don't know, it never happens like that, does it? You just go through the same argument over and over and you can get to a point where you feel like, I'm stuffing this up, I can't, I can't make it better, I don't know how to make it better, um, it's just, uh, I'm making it worse. Uh, I'm ill-equipped at this. I just don't know how to make it better. And, uh, and you know the stakes are high. It's, it's, um, it's huge. It's life-changing and the pressure's on. Like, what if I'm not good enough? What if I can't actually make this work? <clears throat> and sometimes we can feel like that when, when it comes to ministering on, on God's behalf. And I certainly know that, um, you know, a lot of people know that feeling because Almost everyone, when you see a roster that Pastor Rob's made up, uh, I get a lot of people come to me, oh, sorry, I've, um, I've caught the plague. I can't come that day. Uh, also, I have leprosy, so I just can't come the week after. Don't swap me around. Uh, I can't do that one thing. Um, you know, we have this sense of like, oh, somehow I'm, I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. What have I got to say? What have I got to share? I just, I'm, I haven't learned enough. There's no way I can do that job. I'm I just, I can't do it. Don't make me do it. Does anyone know that feeling? You do. I thought I wasn't the only one. And we can even have that feeling. It's more than a feeling, isn't it? It's like an experience of life. We can have that feeling when it comes to even accepting the forgiveness of God at all. Benjamin said uh, when Jesus died on the cross, then he offers us forgiveness, but we have to receive it. And uh, Jesus died on the cross. He offers forgiveness. That's it. It's done. It's over. He said it's done. The forgiveness is there waiting. But it's a whole other step for us to receive it. And you might even know that in a tiny way. Perhaps if you're one of those people when people give you a compliment and you're like, (laughs) no, that's this old thing. No, that's not my real hair. It's really, no, no, someone else did that. I don't know. Some people can't receive a compliment, can they? They Hit it back to you with like a tennis racket back at you. Uh, well, people can be like that, and maybe you are too with, uh, with Jesus. The sense of, I'm not good enough. And I know I certainly felt like that when I came to believe in Jesus as a teenager. <clears throat> and um, my throat's all, because I was singing too hard. I was really liking that song. Good work, Jimmy. Um, 
when I was a teenager and I came to believe that Jesus was real and I believed and I began to understand that Jesus died on the cross so he could forgive our sins. But I, I was like, absolutely, that sounds real and true and he can totally forgive everyone's sins except if he actually knew what I've done, he wouldn't forgive me. And I felt I didn't even want to tell him what I'd done because I thought, well, then he really will give up on me, even though he, he knew, didn't he? Uh, but I thought, no, if I tell him, he, if he really knew, then there's no way he could forgive me. He wouldn't want to forgive me. He couldn't forgive me. We can just feel unworthy. And there's a man in the scripture, in the Bible, his name's Joshua. Uh, not Joshua with Moses, a different guy, Joshua. And he felt just this way that I've been describing this morning. He felt he had a lot of pressure. He had a big time job. The weight of the nation is on his shoulders. He felt pressure from God, pressure from the people. He's carrying this huge weight. He's got this really big task ahead of him. And he feels like he's ill-equipped, not good enough, not worthy, not the man for the job, definitely going to stuff it up, uh, is not going to be able to see it through. And God speaks to him uh, in front of the nation. He gives this prophet a dream and speaks to him. And so that's what I want to talk about today. If you have ever felt this, what if I'm not good enough? And it might be for one of those, you know, circumstances in your life, in your uh, families or in relationships or work, uh, or wherever, or it might be between you and God, and you hear all these songs about come to the altar, and uh, you know we're here to encounter Jesus, and you're still thinking, but oh yeah, everyone else, but not really me. I just sing, and then if He really knew what I had done, He doesn't actually mean me. If you've ever felt like that, or if you ever wonder if you're not good enough, uh, I want to share about what God said to Joshua to us today because it's not just for Joshua it's a it's a timeless message that God has for us today how about you just high five the person next to you to cover up them having a drink it's nice to know who we're sitting next to isn't it <clears throat> so we're going to start this by a quick little history lesson uh, just brief, don't have to take notes, except unless you're a Bible college student, you should. Um, so we're just going to go back in time a little bit uh, to see what's been going on in the lead up towards uh, how Joshua, this high priest, uh, how, why he really feels. And once we get to him um, through history, you'll see uh, the weight on him and the pressure that's on him. He's got huge amounts of pressure and why he really, really feels like he's not good enough to do the job. So I'll take us back a few years. This is uh, a thousand years before Jesus when this is happening. And uh, even if you've never, ever been to church before, you probably would have heard of David and Goliath. Uh, David, the ultimate underdog. Um, he's the little one. Uh, so he comes against Goliath, the big um, giant, and uh, smites him with some little pebbles and wins the day. Uh, later on, he becomes a king, and he's like the ultimate superstar. People are still singing songs that David wrote. He's like this amazing musician um, and uh, the king and warrior of all of Israel, which is all of the people of God. So we're starting, everyone has probably heard of David and Goliath? Yeah, and David. So David was the king, 
After him uh, comes his son, King Solomon, who's known for being really wise. Uh, he, he said lots of wise sayings and he had loads of money. The whole, the whole kingdom was really prosperous at this point. After King Solomon, the kingdom was divided. So that whole area used to be called Israel. But uh, not long after, after King uh, Solomon is gone, um, the kingdom becomes divided. So now you've got Israel up the top, which was a bunch of the tribes, and then Judah down the bottom, which is a couple of the tribes. So when you're reading the Bible and they talk about Israel, all these prophecies to Israel, sometimes it helps to check the date or to know when we're talking about because before what I'm about to say, the whole lot's called, called Israel. And from this point on, uh, Israel's only the top part and they were really bad so they get lots of bad things said against them because they're doing terrible things. Um, so I'm going to go through, uh, this is how fast I'm going, I'm just going to keep it fast because it's not the most entertaining part of my talk. Um, but uh, it, it covers, this section of that I'm talking about of history covers loads of books of the Bible, heaps of the prophets. And uh, it's good to know what they're actually talking about. And then when we read the scriptures, we can have a bit of a context and it can help to bring them alive a lot more than if we're just reading them really shallow. So the prophets were speaking against Israel, first of all. And so we see in the book of Amos and the book of Hosea, they're talking against Israel. And if you just read one of those books in a fairly shallow, or any of the prophets, if you just kind of open it up, play Bible bingo, open it up, what's it say? It does look like God wants to smite his own people all the time. And that's why people say, well, why is the God of the Old Testament so mean and he wants to kill his own people? And then God of the New Testament, Jesus is all, oh, let's love everyone. But actually God is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow and he never changes. And what was going on is that the people of Israel were breaking his covenant, they're breaking his laws. And the prophets aren't exactly saying um, God's going to smite you because he wants to punish you. It's much more like um, if you have like a, a married couple, a man and a woman, and let's say the woman's, or the man, either one, one of them, is going out to bars every night and like flirting with heaps of strangers. Then their best friend might come along and say, hey, I know what you're doing might not be illegal, but you're breaking the marriage covenant, the promises that you made to your spouse, and it's going to end in destruction. If you keep going down this track, you're going to destroy your family. You're going to be left, you know, kicked out of your home. You're going to lose your family. You're going to lose everything. The prophets take on that exact role of the best friend. They're saying to Israel, look, what you're doing might not be, you know, against the law in the, in the eyes of the rest of the world, but you're breaking the covenant relationship that you have with God and you're going to end up destroying your family and destroying the relationship you have with God. So when you read the prophets, that's the spirit behind it. And it's actually uh, God is sad and saying, uh, you're hurting your own people. Because remember, there's no Centrelink. Uh, not that, I don't know if Centrelink is that helpful now, but there was no Centrelink at all back then. And... Um, I'm a Kiwi, I can say that. Um, so there's no social welfare or anything like that for the people. The only social welfare for uh, the vulnerable and the poor is that God has told his people to look after the vulnerable and the poor. During this time, Israel's on this sort of 
trade route and they're getting really rich. Some of the people are getting rich and prosperous at the expense of the more vulnerable. So you've got this whole poor getting poor, rich getting rich thing happening. And that's why God is coming against Israel. In Amos it says, you're walking all over the week, you're treating the poor as less than nothing. You're saying, when's my next paycheck coming out so I can go up and live it up? So it's all of the prophets, all of those books where we, if you just read it in a shallow level, you think, oh, God just hates his own family. He's actually saying, you're mistreating my people. And God hears the cry of the poor. And they're crying out to him and he won't have it. He won't stand for it. So what happens is Israel gets taken over by Assyria. And then it's up to Judah. Oh, when Assyria takes over, this is quite interesting. When Assyria takes over, they take all the people except for the poor people and they bring in other peoples from other lands uh, and inter- like they all get intermarried in the end. So it's a bit like what I've heard, you know, indigenous, uh, like the government took indigenous people and then like moved them to other places and things, displaced them. It's trying to um, not only take the land, but to break this nation so they don't then rebel and come back. So these people intermarried and they become later the Sumerians, no, Samaritans, uh, who end up being the hated people due to hate them from this point on. So that's where the Samaritans come from. And then we've got Isaiah and Micah and Zephaniah and Habakkuk, who are all prophets coming against Judah. But they don't listen. Judah doesn't listen. And soon Babylon takes over Judah. It was just for exactly the same thing. They were worshipping false gods and not following God's economy and not looking after each other. So Babylon took over Judah and you've got... Um, these three sort of different stages. Uh, the first wave, uh, which you probably have heard about if you've ever read the book of Daniel, was actually not that bad. Uh, they came in and they said, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, what a name, I'm going to call him Neb. He came in and he's like, I'm the king now. Uh, you can have a king, but it's a name only. And I'm taking heaps of your really intelligent um, and good looking people. And we'll just kind of keep this a political balance. It wasn't that bad for, for Daniel and all the other people who went to Babylon. They had became wealthy and prosperous and lived good lives. But back in Jerusalem and Judah, the second lot rebelled again against Nebuchadnezzar and he comes in, takes over again. We read all about that in the book of Ezekiel. We're almost to my Joshua dude. Third wave happens with uh, Jeremiah. So this time, Nebuchadnezzar, Neb, is really, really over uh, the rebellion that Jerusalem are doing. And he comes in and he just decimates them. He just destroys all of Jerusalem. It'd be comparable with like uh, Hiroshima. He, he comes in and they destroy the walls. They destroy the temple. They raise it to the ground. They destroy the houses. They kill the people. A few people they take left. Others, the poorest, run to the hills. There's no one left. The town is gone. There's no place called Jerusalem anymore. It's totally raised to the ground. So Jeremiah's been warning that that's going to happen. And then he's actually there while it happens. And that's when he writes the book of Lamentations and several of the lamenting psalms like Psalm 100. So Jerusalem is burning and he's writing this book called Lamentations. Pretty dire, isn't it? Joshua hasn't been born yet, but he's just about to be. Because 
70 years later, as, the, uh, as Jeremiah always prophesied, and you'll read about it in Daniel as well, uh, Persia becomes the new superpower on the block, takes over Babylon and says everyone can go back. So people start to go back and the group who go back first are led by this guy called Zerubbabel, which means born in Babylon, and the great high priest, Joshua. So we finally made it to him. Have, give each other another high five because you sat through my history lesson really, really well. Gosh, we made it. You're like, yeah, she did, she did go on. I know. But it is, I think, good to know uh, some of what all those books of the Bible are actually talking about. But now we get to Joshua, and you can see the history of his people. They were exiled, and Jerusalem's decimated. And they spend all their lives hoping to get back to Jerusalem. I, unfortunately, have done that to my own children and talking up New Zealand too much. Always called it home for a long time. They really have lived all their lives here, but they might accidentally say stuff about New Zealand as though it's home and it's not a good, good way to live. Um, you should be planted where you live. Uh, but this is what they would have been like, you know, always lamenting Jerusalem. We want to go back to Jerusalem. And now when they can go back, Joshua's never been there. And he arrives there. The place is just rubble. And he's the high priest. He's got to lead the whole nation in worshipping God. He's got to rebuild this temple um, and, and teach the people how to worship God. And he's never even seen the temple. And he's never seen a high priest in action. And he's thinking... I don't know where we're getting the money for this. I don't know where, how I'm going to do this. I don't know if God's even going to listen to me. The whole people have been under like this punishment of God because they listened to the priests who were steering them wrong and now he's got to be the priest who steers them right. Otherwise, maybe they'll end up exiled again. What a lot of pressure, isn't it? So when they get there, they build the foundations and then the Samaritans... Uh, cause so much interference that they don't do anything else for 16 years. So on top of all that pressure, he doesn't get anything done for 16 years. And now he's at this point where he's, he's just really like, you know, if I pray, God isn't even listening. There's no way I can even come into God's presence. How am I meant to lead this nation uh, into God's presence and to worship him? And how can I do this job? I'm not the man for the job. And this is what uh, God says to him. So 16 years after they're all back, God showed this man called Zechariah a vision. And in the vision, he sees Joshua, the high priest, the angel of the Lord who's speaking on God's behalf. And it says Satan, who's called the accuser. So this is in Zechariah 3, Zechariah speaking. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at the right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. Is this not the man, is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? And now Joshua was standing in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. And the angel said to all those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, see, I've taken away your sin and I'll put fine garments on you. And then I said, this is Zechariah. He's so excited. He's getting involved. I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. 
So there's this sense of an accuser. Joshua was standing in the presence of this angel and who else is there? The, the accuser, accusing him, saying, you, you're not even dressed to be here. You're wearing filthy clothes. You're never going to be able to do this. You're not equipped. You're not holy. You're not worthy. You're not the man for the job. You haven't been able to get anything happening in the past 16 years. You don't even know what the temple is. And we can know the voice of an accuser, can't we? It might be a spiritual enemy of God, or it might be just our very own, just our very own inner voice. Sometimes I wonder if we could all put little speakers, loudspeakers, into our voices, if perhaps other people would be surprised, or maybe you would be surprised at the, what the inner voice is saying. Do you have that sort of inner voice saying, you're not good enough for this, you can't do this, other people would do a better job, you're going to stuff it up, oh look, you already are stuffing it up. But Joshua is silent. He doesn't say a word against the accuser. He's silent this whole time. The words have like beat him into submission. And it says that he's standing there in filthy clothes. Remember, this is, an, this is a dream that Zechariah saw, not just something he has written down. So uh, the word filthy in Hebrew uh, is the word they use for the worst type of excrement. So he's standing there looking at this man and he's like, he's in filthy, vile, like excrement-covered, disgusting clothes standing right there in the presence of God. That's how Joshua felt, how unworthy he felt. How are you going to lead the people in worshipping God when you're in these disgusting, vile clothes? And Joshua's, you know, he's just got no comeback because it's true. He's standing there like that and the things that are accused, he's accused of are true. He doesn't know how to be a high priest. And sometimes we can have this voice of accusation and it can all be true. You don't know how to do this job. You, you weren't even called by God. He meant to have someone else. It's some sort of accident that you're here. You're never going to do a good job. You might as well stop now. Turn back. Don't stuff it up worse than you already have. You can't do it for someone else. That all might be true. And so we stand silent in front of this accuser. But God wants to show us that he is the one who rebukes the voice of the accuser, even if it's our very own inner voice. The Lord rebukes you, Satan or accuser. And then he says, look, I am the one who's chosen Jerusalem. I'm the one who's chosen Joshua. He's like a man, a, a burning stick that I pulled out of a fire. Who, who, who pulls a burning stick out of a fire and then expects it to be a world-class violin? or a beautiful turned table leg. When you pull a stick out of a fire, you already know what you're going to get. You're going to get a burnt stick. And God chooses us because he chose us and he already knows what he's going to get. He's already read all the fine print. He already knew before he chose you uh, what he's going to get. He knew before you even knew yourself. He knew before anyone knew you existed. When you were just being formed in secret, in your mother's womb, he already chose you. Not because you won all the prizes and the beauty contest, just because of who he is. He chose you. He chooses us. And he already knows what he's going to get. Ephesians 1 to 4 says, Even before he made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in, it, in his eyes. 
Not that we already are. We don't have to be already done. He chooses us and then he'll make us that way. In 1 Corinthians 1.27 it says, God's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and God chooses the weak things of the world to confound the mighty. He's got this weird habit of choosing the most unlikely, like David, the underdog, the most unlikely. So if you feel like you're the most unlikely candidate, it's probably a good sign that in fact you're specially chosen by God. The Bible says... We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So a clay jar, it's not a beautiful gold chalice. It's just an everyday jar for, you know, everyday use, bringing water. They'd use it every single day. It's just ordinary. And we only have to be ordinary. And God puts his extraordinary power into our lives. 2 Corinthians 3, 4 and 5, it says... It says it's not, it's not our own qualification. God qualifies for this. We're confident of all this because of our great trust in God through Christ. It's not that we think that we're qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. You don't already have to be completely qualified. If you feel I'm ill-equipped, I'm not fully qualified, I don't know everything, God calls you then and he teaches you on the way and he equips you on the way. Isn't that good? That's what grace is. Amazing grace. Undeserved grace. So, then the next verse. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts and I will give you a place among these standing here. So he's talking about the angels. And in some translations it says, I will give you free access to this place. Uh, as though when Joshua prays, his prayers will be heard. He has free access into this throne room of God. But you can't get to this part unless you first stand like Joshua did and acknowledge what you're wearing in front of God. How would it have gone down can you just imagine, Zechariah sees this vision, the music swelling, the angel of the Lord says, take off the filthy clothes and put the new clothes on, and the angels rush forward, and then Joshua's like, nah, I'm all right, they're not that bad. The other angels are like, dude, it stinks, take the new clothes. Imagine if Joshua went, you know, there's probably other people more worthy for those clothes, find someone else, I'm okay in these. This actually is a really comfy shirt. I know it's stained on the outside, but it's my favorite and it's comfortable and I don't want to have to break in a new shirt or new shoes. You know, they're scratchy. I might get blisters. How would that have gone down? God can't uh, make us receive anything. And so that's why there's always that action of having to receive it. You know, I, I, here's another story about Nikita. When she was three, she had this beautiful dress that a friend made us and she never wanted to take it off. I mean, never. She would wear it all day and all night and then all day and all night. And any time I came near her to take it off, she would just scream, have a big tantrum. So I left it on her for ages. And then other people are like, how long is that kid going to wear that dress? And it was really dirty and you know, she's starting to smell and I was like, I can't get it off her. And the only way I could get it off her, I'm like, sweetie, it's really dirty. She's like, no, I love it. 
Uh, the only way I could get it off was to do something quite drastic. And I pretended I had a cup of water. And so I pretended to trip and poured the water all over her. And then went, oh, no, it's all wet. Now we have to take it off and get it dry again. And that's the only time she let me do it. So I did that a few times and she was tricked every time. <clears throat> well, when, God, when you stand before God and you're wearing something that's like filthy rags or you're clutching something and God says, let me take that off you and give you these new clothes, these robes of righteousness, these garments of praise, I don't be like my toddler and require something drastic to happen in your life before you'll let that stuff go. Know that it's a good gift from God and he doesn't want anything bad for us. He wants to clothe us in goodness and his righteousness. This is a year of freedom. So let's exchange. Let's have that exchange with him and uh, allow him to give us something new. You know, if you don't know, I'm talking metaphorical clothing. You can keep all your clothes on. But, but what are we talking about? Well, the Bible says we should have a garment of praise. Are you wearing a garment of praise? Or are you wearing a garment of grumbles? How do you live your life? This metaphorical clothing that you're wearing. Are you wearing a coat of contentment and peace and thankfulness or are you wearing a coat of criticism everything that happens has to be criticized what what are you wearing uh, in your life and before God did you read that <laughs> in Proverbs twenty eight thirteen, it says people who conceal their sins will not prosper but if they confess and turn from them they will receive mercy the mercy of God's on tap it's all right there but we have to be able to acknowledge how we stand before God and then he can do the exchange or only if we'll receive that exchange. Is that making sense? I thought maybe I should bring a coat so you'd understand my metaphor too much into the metaphor. There's one more last part of the verse and this is this. Uh, the very last part. God says, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, so they're the other priests, you who are men symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant the branch, uh, which is uh, talking about Jesus. In every single one of the prophets, even when they're condemning the country, Israel or Judah, there's always this hope, this mighty hope that Jesus is coming, the Messiah is coming. They're looking at this exile in the short term and then like the long-term exile that we're still waiting for the fullness of God now. We have that in Jesus the Messiah. Uh, and I want to put it to you today um, that this line here, he's saying, Joshua, you're symbolic of things to come. I'd like to put it to you today that if you are a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus, that you are symbolic of things to come, that you are symbolic of God and symbolic of, you know, the eternal life that we have in Jesus. So I might just grab the music team up if you're ready. So you've had this free overview of the Old Testament really fast, as fast as I could. Uh, and um, obviously we can't tell people who um, haven't never read the Bible or aren't interested any of that stuff about Zerubbabel or Nebuchadnezzar. 
because uh, it's not relevant, it's not interesting, it's not going to help them in their daily life. Uh, what we must tell them is, our, what we must show them is our own faith relationship. God's moving now. Not only did he move in the people of Israel, he's moving now in our lives. And so we be, come the symbols of God. So when people look at our lives, you know the symbols, you know the symbol for Bluetooth, you know the symbol for Wi-Fi, you know the symbol for no smoking. Well, God's made it that when people look at Christians, at followers of Jesus, we are symbols of Him. Right from the beginning of creation, it wasn't a new thing when Jesus came along. We're made in the image and likeness of God. So when people look at us, they see the likeness of God or they're meant to. So when you are in your workplaces and in your families and you forgive people or you should be forgiving people, you're actually a symbol of how God forgives. We should be. We should be. Uh, When we're generous, we're showing the generosity of God. He's not stingy. When we love, when we reach out to strangers, uh, all those interactions we have, we are actually meant to be symbols of things to come, symbols of Jesus, symbols of the eternal life that we have in Jesus. Like the fifth gospel. It's Matthew, Mark and Luke and John and then there's you. You've all heard that saying that some people, you may be the only Bible they ever read. You may be the first Bible that they read. And if that doesn't make you feel unqualified, uh, I don't know what will, or overwhelmed or not the man for the job, I'm not sure what will, that we, be, we are actually the walking around symbols of God. Um, that makes me feel, oh, I'm not sure, maybe we could get people to look somewhere else. Um, but we just comfort ourselves with, you know, what God uh, said to this high priest, Joshua, that uh, it's Jesus who silences that voice of accusation. And it's not our own awesomeness that because why we're chosen. It's God who's chosen us. And it's not our own power that we live in that will make changes in people's lives. It's God's power within us. And we just stand before God in rags and we don't have to have anything else. And he's the one who clothes us in himself. He wants to replace the the filthy with the clean and the grumbles with the praise. Maybe you've been, you're like a person walking around wearing clothes from the 1970s still, big brown cord bell bottoms or something. When the last, that was the last time you heard from God. And God wants to take off those old-fashioned clothes and put on something new and fresh, a fresh revelation. So let's, let's just pray. If you'll just close your eyes, <clears throat> just seated where you are, we'll just pray for a moment and ask God to speak to us. Because, you know, Jeremiah, uh, he was there as Jerusalem burned, just decimated his whole nation and whole culture. And right then he wrote the book of Lamentations, even as the walls were being torn down, even as the temple was burning, he wrote these famous words, God, how great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. 
So it doesn't matter what's going on in your life right now. Even if it does feel like you're going through the destruction of everything, His mercies are new every morning. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. If you stand before God right now and you're thinking, I'm just in filthy rags, His mercies are new every morning. You haven't used up all of His patience. I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us now. Lord Jesus, I'd ask that you just speak to each individual now and uh, show us it's just between you and them. Just show us how we appear before you now. Just take a moment and let, let God show us that. And you might think God is showing you that you're clothed in white and he's forgiven every sin and you stand right before God. Just thank him for that. Thank him for your undeserved grace, Jesus. Well, God might be showing you that he's clothed you in new clothes, but you're still hanging on to something, some dusty old rag like a comfort blankie you keep dragging around with you. And I believe today he's saying, can I take that from you? It doesn't go with the rest of your life. It doesn't belong there. Can I take that from you and give you something new? I think that God might be showing someone here today that you're standing in your outer clothing, like your cloak, your coat is is shiny and new, but underneath uh, there's some dirty old clothes that you've kept on and you never took off. And you've hidden them from God and hidden them from others. If God's showing you that today, he's saying, take it all off. Let me wash you and make you new. And if you find yourself like Joshua with only rags, just like to Joshua, he says, take them off, let me clothe you anew. Just allow yourself to do that transaction with Jesus. He gives us good gifts. He takes away the old and he gives us the new. And it doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for a hundred years. He can take away those old dusty dreams and give you fresh vision, a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit today that will even surprise even you. thank you Jesus that you have such good plans towards us and you never show us uh, any lack or weakness in us to shame us there's no shame and no condemnation in you but you only allow us to see these things so that we'll let them go 
so that we'll walk into a new freedom as you give us your new promises and a fresh Holy Spirit and clean clothes that we can stand tall. You wipe all shame away. I thank you for your presence here with us today and um, ask that you continue to speak to us uh, through this word to Joshua uh, throughout this week. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed that brief history lesson. It didn't look like you did, but perhaps next time, perhaps next time you read through, you know, Jeremiah or Lamentations, you'll have a a better idea of what's going on and um, it'll make more sense to you and God can speak even deeper um, than he ever has before. So I'd like to invite Pauline up now and she's got some announcements to share with us.